morning. We're in Mark chapter 13 this morning, and this is an unusual passage. Um, Because it's got that verse 30 in there, where Jesus says, I tell you the truth, before this generation passes away, all these things will take place. And if we understand him to be talking about the end of the world, then it makes Jesus out to be a false prophet because it's 2,000 years later, and here we all still are. That's how I understood it for many years. However, the real problem with why this passage confuses us is because we don't understand it correctly. There's a lot of times when there's a tough Bible passage that I have to kind of get up here and say, I really don't know. But uh, today is not one of them. I actually, we can do this one. We can fix this one. We can fix this one with a little old-fashioned verse-by-verse Bible study. Who grew up on verse-by-verse Bible study? Okay, we're going to do some. Okay, a little bit of clapping, a little bit of groaning. That's all right. But that's what we got to do to untangle ourselves. Verse-by-verse Bible study. What I want to show you today is that in verses 1 through 31 of Mark 13, Jesus was, in fact, not talking about the end of the world. He was talking about the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem and the end of the Jewish world and the end of Jerusalem as the center of the religious life of God. And the second thing I want to show is the reason why Jesus even brought this up was not to spread fear and paranoia, but to give his disciples and to give you and to give me courage to do what is right, even in dark and confusing times. God is God, even in scary and confusing times. So with no more introduction than that, let's begin. It is still the Tuesday before the cross. We are still in our series on Lent. We've just gone the verse after the one we were doing last week. As if you've been with us all these weeks, Jesus has been in the temple all morning on this Tuesday. He has done some things that uh, drew some attention. He has gotten into arguments with religious leaders. Now it's late morning and Jesus is leaving the temple. Mark chapter 13, verse 1. As Jesus was leaving the temple that day, one of the disciples said, Teacher, look at these magnificent buildings. Look at the impressive stones and the walls. Jesus replied, Yes, look at these great buildings. But they will be completely demolished. Not one stone will be left on top of another. Later, Jesus sat on the Mount of Olives across the valley from the temple. Peter, James, John, and Andrew came to him privately and asked him, Tell us when all this will happen. What sign will show us that these things are about to be fulfilled? This is the verses you have to remember the whole rest of the morning. Are they asking, tell us when the end of the world will come? No, because no one said anything about the end of the world. Jesus said this temple will be demolished. And standing across from the temple, they say, what are the signs that that's about to happen? If we can keep that in mind, what Jesus said and the question he was asked, we will keep in mind the question he is answering for the rest of the morning as we go on to verse five. Jesus replied, don't let anyone mislead you, for many will come in my name claiming, I am the Messiah. They will deceive many, and you will hear of wars and threats of wars, but don't panic. Yes, these things must take place, but the end won't follow immediately. Now Jesus gives him two warnings. Beware of false teachers. And then he says, when you experience these wars and threats of wars, don't panic. These aren't the signs that the end of the world is coming. Okay. 
Now, to go on in this passage, we're going to need a short history lesson, something that his disciples knew immediately because they lived there, but we may not remember anymore. So let me get my super heavy dry erase board up here. I had a helper first service. They've forgotten to be here. Let's see what happens. Oh, my goodness gracious. All right. This thing's made of brick or something. Okay, there it is. This is the history lesson we need but to understand the rest of the passage. The temple that they're all talking about was actually destroyed by the Babylonians in 586 B.C. But the Babylonian Empire fell to the Persians, and the Persians let the Israelites go home and rebuild it in 516 B.C. This is the temple, and so here we are in 33 A.D., Mark chapter 13, Tuesday before the cross, and Jesus is telling them this temple will be demolished, and that's where our passage in the Gospel of Mark ends. But we know from history that in 70 A.D., in fact, 37 years later, the Romans surrounded Jerusalem, besieged the city, tore the temple to the ground, literally not one stone on top of another was the order that they gave. Within the disciples' lifetime, this happened. Bearing that in mind, let's go to verse 8. Nation will go to war against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in many parts of the world as well as famines. But this is only the first of the birth pains with more to come. Jesus uh, now has told them twice, wars, earthquakes, not signs of the end. Only the beginning. And then Jesus describes it as birth pains, not death throes birth pains. Let's think think of some things that we know about birth. The first thing we know about birth is you don't know how long labor will last, just like you don't know when the end will come. You know it will be painful, and Jesus has told them there'll be pain ahead. You know that the pain will come in waves, and the waves will be increasingly intense, and you don't know when the last one is. I I didn't experience it personally. I was kind of there on the sidelines watching it happen. And it looked like uh, a way a birth pain would come and you would feel like, I can't do another one of these. And in fact, you can do another one of them and one worse than the one you just had. And one worse after that. But at the end of those waves of birth pains comes new life, a new birth. And I think that's the best reason Jesus used birth pains to describe the end of the world because for Christians it is a sign of new life. God is God even in scary, uncertain times. Bear that in mind as we go to verse 9. When these things begin to happen, watch out. You'll be handed over to local councils and beaten in the synagogues. You'll stand trial before governors and kings because you are my followers. But this will be your opportunity to tell them about me. For the good news must be preached to all nations. This will happen to Jesus by the end of the week, beaten and on trial before rulers. This will happen to Peter and the other disciples in just a few years. It will happen to the Apostle Paul. All of these things happen to them in their own generation, as Jesus said. Verse 11. But when you are arrested and stand trial, don't worry in advance about what to say. Just say what God tells you at that time. For it will not be you who will be speaking, but the Holy Spirit. 
And now Jesus focuses them on what they should be doing instead of panicking. They should be proclaiming the good news, telling the world, even their enemies, about this new picture of God through Jesus that he is painting. No fighting, no resisting, just telling the truth and the power of the Spirit. In fact, he says, you don't even have to plan your speech ahead of time. When the moment comes for you to do this, the Holy Spirit will give you the words. Hope. But not just hope. Verse 12. A brother will betray his brother to death. A father will betray his own child. And children will rebel against their parents and cause them to be killed. And everyone will hate you because you are my followers. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. Jesus is pulling no punches. He says this could get as dark as you can possibly imagine. Your own family may turn against you, but I'm telling you, if you will stay true to the end, you will be saved. Because God is God, even in terrible and confusing times. And now we get to a verse that's going to sound really weird to us. Verse 14. The day is coming when you will see the sacrilegious object that causes desecration standing where he should not be. Reader, pay attention. Now that's what we expect from Bible prophecy. Lots of scary sounding words that we don't know what they mean. The disciples weren't confused by this at all. The reason why this sometimes confuses us is because we don't know our Old Testament well enough. We don't know our history well enough. It's, it's not our history, it's theirs. But the disciples would have recognized immediately that Jesus had just quoted the prophet Daniel. The prophet Daniel, who writes in uh, chapter 11, verse 31. Daniel, by the way, is, is writing during this time period. And he says, his army will take over the temple fortress, pollute the sanctuary, put a stop to the daily sacrifices, and set up the sacrilegious object that causes desecration. And sure enough, in 167 BC, the Greek general Antiochus Epiphanes loses a war in Egypt. He's not happy. He's swinging through Jerusalem on his way back to Greece and he hears that there's a rebellion going on. He's gonna, he's gonna beat somebody on this campaign. So he swings over to quick stop in Jerusalem to put down the rebellion in Jerusalem. He does. Antiochus Epiphanes then goes into the temple of God and has pigs slaughtered on the altar of God a huge religious insult to Jews. Then he sets up statues of Zeus in the temple and commands that the Jews have to begin to worship Zeus in the temple. Sacrilegious object that causes desecration. And that sets off the Maccabean War, which is another sermon for another time. Daniel is telling the people It's going to be a dark time, and you're going to see a sacrilegious object set up in the temple. Now, Jesus takes Daniel's word and says, you're going to see something like what Daniel saw, a sacrilegious object standing where he should not be, the scripture says. And we know in 70 AD, after a four-year war, the Roman general Titus walks into the temple. He goes into the most holy place which is a place only the high priest of God was supposed to go in only once a year. And this pagan general walks in and stands in it, a sacrilegious object standing where he should not be in it. And from that place he declares, this temple will be torn down, no two bricks on top of another. And so it was. 
This happened in their generation, just like Jesus said. Second half of verse 14. Then those in Judea must flee to the hills. A person out on the deck of a roof must not go down into the house to pack. A person out in the field must not return even to get a coat. How terrible it will be for pregnant women and for nursing mothers in those days. And pray that your flight will not be in winter. These are some of the best verses we have that Jesus isn't talking about the end of the world because he tells them all, you're going to need to run away. And you can't run away from the end of the world. Where would you be running to and why would you care if you're pregnant or if it's winter time? But Jesus is telling them, when you start to see these things happen, it's over. Flee Jerusalem. You can't beat the Romans. Do not stand and fight for this temple, I'm telling you. I've been telling you all week, this temple is coming down. Listen to Jesus' trial when it comes on, on a Friday. They'll say, he said he could tear the temple down and rebuild it in three days. Talking about his body rising in three days, a new temple of God. In fact, all of your bodies will become temples of the Holy Spirit. When Jesus dies on Friday on the cross, the curtain in the temple tears. We've had every clue we need to say, the temple age is over. There's a new picture of God. Run away when you see this happening. Verse 19. For there will be greater anguish in those days than at any time since God created the world, and it will never be so great again. Josephus, the historian who wrote the history of this war, he wrote it only five years after the war ended, tells us two things. One, he says... In the four years leading up to the destruction of the temple, there were many false messiahs, just like Jesus said there would be. And then he says, and inside that city, when the Romans surrounded it, there were warring factions trapped in there together, and they began to eat one another's children to survive. And those warring factions began to fight over control of the few meager supplies they have, and they murdered each other. It was a horror show for four years inside the walls of that city, just like Jesus said it would be in their own generation. Verse 20. In fact, unless the Lord shortens that time of calamity, not a single person will survive. But for the sake of his chosen ones, he has shortened those days. A word of hope. The temple will be destroyed. You will think it's all over. You will think everyone is going to die. And in fact, they would, except for the Lord. This pain isn't going to last forever. This dark time will not last forever. He tells them God is God, even in terrible and confusing times. Verse 21. Then if anyone tells you, look, here is the Messiah, or there he is, don't believe it. For false messiahs and false prophets will rise up and perform signs and wonders so as to deceive, if possible, even God's chosen ones. Watch out. I have warned you about this ahead of time. Now Jesus has literally preached this up one side and down the other. He's told them everything twice. Don't fall for false messiahs. Don't be panicked by wars or earthquakes thinking it's the end of the world. Flee. Don't fight. And when you are arrested, proclaim before your enemies the good news of Jesus Christ and the new picture of God. What we're saying today is going to sound a little out of step.
for a lot of you because American end times teaching that you get from Christian media, television, radio, such like that, often teaches us just the opposite of everything we've been saying this morning. It will teach us that what we need to do is uh, store up guns and canned goods and plan for some big bloody showdown, holy war style, planning to kill even our own brothers and sisters if they try to come and get our canned peaches and spam. Now, I had to search the internet not very long to find a, a video of a guy who's doing a fallout shelter. Ironically, he's teaching Pakistanis, who also have the bomb, how to build their own fallout shelter so we can all live in this hell on earth together um, and just listen to his, the advice that he gives. Crowley, nice to meet you, sir. Welcome to my fallout shelter. This is where you might have to spend two weeks of your life living in the event of a nuclear attack. There may be people alive outside. We have food, we have water. Those people want what we have. The name of the game here is to survive. Your cousins come knocking on that door and they're trying to get in here, you're gonna have to kill them. Because then everybody else's life is a jeopardy. That's right. Okay, Easy. you kill him. Best thing to do is have a firearm. Oh. That way you don't have to get that close to them. Uh -huh. Cost of killing your cousin is a lot of moral cost. Moral. But we do not, moral we do not follow right. that rule because at this point, the cousin is already dead. This is not the teaching of Jesus. If you came to Jesus' shelter and he had one canned good left, he would not kill you to keep it. Jesus told them to be faithful to the end and even to flee Jerusalem instead of fighting for it, but that temple was not worth fighting for. This is an interesting message to come during Lent, this time when we're supposed to reflect. And I think this message calls us to reflect on what do we plan to do? Were you planning that if times became dark, you would just become dark with them? That if times became evil, that you would have to become evil with them? Or were you planning to follow the way of Jesus as Jesus followed the way, all the way to the cross if necessary? This is the, this is the prayer. Uh, we're, we're giving out these uh, prayer cards. You can get them as you leave if you like, and, and you carry it in your pocket and Anytime during Lent you're reminded to pray, you can pray this week, Lord Jesus, show me where I've been planning to be unchristian in hard times. Instead of being like Jesus when it matters the most, give me courage in uncertain times. Verse 24. At that time, after the anguish of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will give no light, the stars will fall from the sky, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. Then everyone will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds with great power and glory, and he will send out his angels to gather his chosen ones from all over the world, from the farthest ends of the earth and heaven. And we hear a verse like that, stars falling, the moon not shining. We think, okay, now surely this is dramatic enough. We must be talking about the end of the world. And I want to tell you that we are still not talking about the end of the world. And the reason this confuses us is, again, we, we don't know our Old Testament well enough and our history well enough to recognize, as the disciples recognized immediately, Jesus is quoting the prophet Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah who wrote during this time. And the prophet Isaiah tells them that the Babylonians will not last forever. After they visit this great calamity on us, God will end the Babylonian Empire because God is God, even in terrible and confusing times. 
God uses the Medes to destroy the Babylonians. Listen to, uh, this is directly from Isaiah, the passage Jesus quotes. The heavens will be black above them. That's, that's what he said. The stars will give no light. The sun will be dark when it rises and the moon will provide no light. Everyone in Babylon will run around like a hunted gazelle. Look, I will stir up the Medes against Babylon. And that did happen. Isaiah was telling the people, our times are gonna become dark, very dark. The temple of God's going to be destroyed. But God is God, even in terrible and confusing times, and he will destroy the Babylonian empire. Jesus now scoops those verses from Isaiah to say again, our times are gonna become dark, very dark. The temple of God is going to be destroyed. But God is God, even in terrible and confusing times, and he can bring to an end the Roman Empire, and he can gather his people. Verse 28. Now learn a lesson from the fig tree. When its branches bud and its leaves begin to sprout, you know summer is near. In the same way, when you see all these things taking place, you can know that his return is very near, right at the door. Does he mean the return of Christ and the end of the world is very near and will happen immediately? Well, he can't mean that. He's already said twice in this teaching that that's not what he means. But he is bringing hope. That when these terrible things happen, you can know God is very near that after pain comes birth. Who knows when? Who knows how long the pain will last or how bad it becomes, but birth does come. Jesus replaces his disciples' end-time panic with this realization to cling to. God is God, even in terrible and confusing times. And now the key verse of the morning, verse 30. I tell you the truth. This generation will not pass from the scene before all these things have taken place. And now, if in fact these have all been about the end of the world, then verse 30 is not true. But if, as I believe, Jesus was asked, when will the temple be destroyed? And he gave all these signs, and all these things did happen in their generation, and that is what he has been talking about in this passage, then every verse we have read falls into place and has proper meaning and teaches us about the ways of God. And so I'll submit to you that that is the proper understanding of verses 1 through 30. Jesus was telling them about a dark time to come that will happen in their generation and to through it all cling to the way of Jesus and proclaim the good news. We now have only one verse left this morning. It is verse 31 and now Jesus will talk about the end of the world. Heaven and earth will disappear but my words will never disappear. And This is our promise. No matter what happens, God is God and his word will not disappear even in terrible and confusing times. And with this verse, he will now begin seven verses where he will talk about the end of the world. And to hear what he said, you'll have to come back next week. Because we have to stop and reflect on what he said so far. And what I want to ask is, what were you planning to do in dark times? If terrifying times came to us, were you planning to hoard and to kill? Or to do what Jesus 
said to do, to stand firm and to tell your enemies about this new picture of God. No matter where that sacrifice takes you. It was a dark time in 1965 when a group of marchers in Alabama were going to march for the rights of African Americans to vote. On a bridge in Alabama, they met state troopers. And they were met with a very dark day. And I'd like us to watch a, a video of that day and pay special attention to what happened immediately after this day. Let's watch this together. In early 1965, Selma, Alabama became the site of a civil rights campaign to enable black voters to register. On Sunday, March 7th, 600 people set out for the state capitol in Montgomery, 50 miles away, hoping to gain national attention. Wallace had issued an order to prevent the march. His state troopers were waiting at the Edmund Pettus Bridge at the edge of town. It would be detrimental to your safety to continue this march, and I'm saying that this is an unlawful assembly. You have to disperse. You are ordered to disperse, go home, or go to your church. This march will not continue. In the beginning, I thought we would be arrested and just taken to jail. Uh, but when I saw the troopers putting on their gas masks and raising their sticks and the bull whips, those moments when the troopers came toward us, I knew then we would be beaten. of what would be called Bloody Sunday were witnessed that night by a horrified national television audience. Wallace never intended for that violence to take place on that Sunday in Selma. His police chief lost control of himself, and uh, what you had was a police riot. Wallace was smart enough to know. I mean, he was the one who invented backlash politics, and he didn't want to create his own backlash against his politics by having this type of thing shown on the news nationwide. Wallace was as mad, I believe, as I've ever seen him. He is a very sensible man. He knows that things like that hurts his political image, even in the state of Alabama. The violence in Selma had immediate impact. Days later, President Lyndon Johnson asked Congress to pass the most comprehensive voting rights bill in the nation's history. And I'll submit that that happened because they suffered. Had they shown up on that bridge ready, they had guns, they had pipes, they had rocks, and when the state troopers came, had they fought back, do you think we would have passed a Voters' Rights Act that same week? I don't think so. 
I think about the Jews who suffered so innocently at the hands of the Nazis in the Holocaust. And a movie came out a few years ago that kind of suggested maybe what the Jews should have done is gotten ball bats and went around beating Nazis' heads in and scalping them like Indians, and that would have made it all better. But I want to ask you, had they done that, would there have been an outpouring of compassion for them? And would we have formed the nation of Israel for them? Would we have learned anything if that's how it had gone? I submit we would sit here today if that's how it would have been, and we'd say, well, the Nazis were harsh, but Jews were really violent. They were dangerous. It was, they were hard to control. It was only because they suffered so innocently that we learned what evil is and what good is. And it's the same with Jesus. He had great power at his disposal, but only because he took this posture did we see what good is and see what evil is. This is the posture Jesus took to save the world. Notice that Jesus did not take this posture. This was Peter's idea in the garden, and Jesus said, put that away. This is not how this is done. Rome was the wealthiest, most militarily powerful nation on earth, and they came at the church with this posture. The church, on the other hand, was filled with slaves at this time, a few freedmen, a lot of women, and foreigners who before the Roman Empire could only take this posture. And many of them did. And now I want to ask you, the Roman Empire or the Church of Jesus Christ, who is still here today? Because God is God even in terrible and confusing times. Now our church sits in the exact middle of the wealthiest, most militarily powerful nation on earth, and we must decide which posture to take. To destroy our enemies or to proclaim to them a new picture of God in Jesus Christ. It's not an easy question. And that is why we pray all this week. Lord Jesus, show me where I have been planning to be unchristian in hard times. Instead of being like Jesus when it matters the most, give me courage in uncertain times. And this is what real end times teaching should do. It should give our souls not fear and paranoia, but it should give us courage to live the way of Jesus and his way only and do what is right this day, no matter how terrifying or uncertain it is. So the worship team will lead us in our prayer, our song, in which we pledge to live this way of Jesus only and no other way. So let us pray it in song together. Amen, amen. In a couple of weeks, no, no, next week, sorry. Next week, we have our uh, As One two-year celebration. So we're two years into our As One financial challenge, and we're celebrating it all together. So everyone in the church is invited. Uh, we're gonna have food catered in by On the Border for free, yay, free to you. And so uh, that's gonna be great, but keep that in mind if you have little ones. My kid won't eat On the Border, so we'll be bringing a peanut butter and jelly. Now, for every a member of your family, no matter of their age, who will be eating, you want to make sure you take a ticket from the round kiosk in the lobby. 
Um, now, when it comes time to come that night, if you have lost a ticket, do not worry about it. The ticket was only for a headcount for food, so you don't actually have to have the ticket to show up, but please take one so we get the right number of meals. Uh, we have childcare that night for kids uh, second grade and under, and uh, that is provided for free as well. So at the round kiosk, if you're bringing anybody that age that will be in the childcare area, let them know so they'll mark it off when we get the right number of nannies here. We have Robert Lupton, uh, author of Toxic Charity, a great book about how Christians should participate in charity without taking people's dignity from them. What a great uh, message he's going to bring us. And then following that, uh, dessert and live music. So it's going to be quite a party on St. Patrick's Day here at Lakeland next Sunday. I hope you all can attend. I apologize for those of you I haven't gotten to meet yet. Uh, today I have an engagement immediately following service. I can't do that. I am sorry. But uh, next week, next week we'll catch up. So uh, we'll see you then. Let us close today then proclaiming the essentials of our faith and the things we cling to in times good and bad by, by reciting the Apostles' Creed together. I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who is conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven. He is seated at the right hand of the Father, and he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, one holy church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Go forth in prayer and peace. Amen.